Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to Starship Sofa. How is everyone? We are on to now day three of the British Science Fiction Association Best Short Story 2007. I hope you've been following along each day and you're getting a taste for the stories that are in there for this award. Once we get to Friday and the last one goes up, that will be it. The five stories are online. Which one do you think would win? What I'm trying to do is, as well as put these five stories out, the actual award gets announced on Saturday the 29th of March. On the 22nd, what I'm trying to do is do a little show myself where I try and nail down the winner. I'm hopefully trying to get Fred online as well to do a little show. See if we can guess which one is going to win. And if you remember last year when me and Kieran did this, I got it wrong. So don't forget, pop over to the forums. There will be a poll on there now for best story. Click the box, tell us which one you think is the best story and leave comments. Drop me an email, starshipsofa at gmail.com or just check out the website, starshipsofa.com. So today's story, The Gift of Joy by Ian Waits, first came out in the online magazine Total Quality Reading, narrated by Alex Foster. And actually, Alex Foster narrated The Invisible Man for LibriVox, which is a great little recording there. So pop over to Alex Foster's website. It's alexfoster.me.uk. Links will be on the site to everything mentioned today, so please pop over. You can actually find Ian Waits' online story at TQR. Links will be there as well to the site. So today, Starship Sofa and her oral delights presents The Gift of Joy by Ian Waits. Conrad sauntered into Lacey's bar and took his accustomed place on one of the high stools, which settled with a disconcerting lurch. He wriggled in an effort to find a more stable base, causing the stool's feet to scrape against the mock wood with teeth-jarring effect. Roach glanced up to favour him with a sour look that bisected a smile and a grimace, his customary form of greeting. Roach was a constant feature at Lacey's. He ate there, drank there, and worked from there. For all Conrad knew, he might even have slept there. "'Another lousy day,' he observed." "'Aren't they all?' Conrad responded, completing a ritual that had become established between them an age ago. My Ling materialised at the other side of the counter, armed with a coy smile and a glass of gently effervescing beer. She was not coy, as Conrad well knew. It was just part of the camouflage she presented when at work. With a grunt, he fished in his pocket for some coins, forcing his fingers beneath the tight crease formed by his trousers, and wishing he had thought to take the money out before sitting down. Beer paid for, his eyes settled on the television. 
It sat above the bar and currently featured a news or current affairs programme. The image switched from a reporter to a close-up of President Kelly, coverage of a recent speech by the look of it. Grey-blue eyes gazed straight at the camera for an instant, integrity oozing from every pore of his craggy, near-handsome face. The volume was set too low to make out individual words, a minor mercy for which Conrad was grateful. The picture then cut to a long shot from the same event, the President shaking hands with some dignitary or other. "'Do we have to have that thing on?' Conrad complained. He had his own reasons for not wanting to look at the President more often than necessary. Myling shrugged, and clearly had no intention of switching it off. A deliberate act of perversity, she knew how much he loathed watching that man, and why. "'I hate this town,' Roach said, to no one in particular. "'No, he didn't. More camouflage. Slate was not the sort of place that anyone stayed in unless they wanted to, and Roach had been there for as long as anyone could remember.' The comment did not require a response, and Conrad duly obliged by ignoring it. The story went that the town's founders had called the new settlement Slate because it represented a new beginning, a chance to start again to wipe the slate clean. Conrad had his own theory. He believed the place had been called Slate because it was cold, hard, and grey. Of course, not everyone shared his jaundiced view— it was all a question of perspective, with his particular perspective being from the bottom, looking up. As with any place that had been established for a while, Slate inevitably involved its own districts and strata. There were those who had done very well for themselves, affluent types who lived in nice upmarket suburbs. Anyone who saw only these areas might be forgiven for thinking that this was a nice place to live, but that was just the icing— lift it up and you would soon find the crumbling layers of stale pastry hidden underneath. Conrad was not a native of Slate, having arrived several years ago and knowing at once that it would do just fine. He quickly found his own level, settling somewhere towards the base of the pile where people kept themselves to themselves and were rarely inclined to ask too many questions. Not that he had a problem with questions as such, it was the answers that could prove a little awkward. By way of contrast, the woman who had just walked into Lacey's and was now hovering uncertainly by the door clearly belonged to the opposite end of the social spectrum, the icing. Tall, blonde, porcelain-skinned and immaculately made up, wearing designer shoes that were perfectly matched by a bag of the most impractical sort, far too small to hold much of anything. The ensemble was completed by a long, stylishly tailored coat that had not been bought from anywhere around here— unless it had come from the back of a large anonymous vehicle, and uh, Conrad was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. He looked away, continuing to watch her from the corner of his eye. Beside him, Roach came alert and did the same. They were both calculating the odds. The woman stood out like a mermaid in the desert, and there could only be so many explanations for her presence. The way he figured it, either she was lost or she was looking for something— if the latter, then she was probably seeking one of several illicit thrills that Roach could guide her to, or his own unique services. She made her way hesitantly to the bar. Both he and Roach continued to feign indifference. Further evidence that she was out of her element, she ordered an expensive cocktail that stood absolutely no chance of being made properly in a joint like this. My Ling did her best, presenting a tall glass that held a fair approximation of the requested drink, at least to Conrad's inexperienced eye. 
Then she wanted to pay electronically and was completely phased by My Ling's shake of the head, fumbling around in her pocket-sized bag for coins as if she had all but forgotten what real money was for. I was looking. Both his and Roach's ears pricked up. I mean, I was told that a man called Conrad sometimes drinks in here. Roach slumped a fraction. My Ling's eyes flicked in Conrad's direction an instant before he turned, displaying his most engaging smile. Then you were told wrong, madam. I always drink in here. <laughs> Her nervous laugh was a delight. He led her to a corner table where they could talk more discreetly. As he took both their drinks from the bar, he caught My Ling watching him, her expression unreadable. "'My name's Joy,' the vision before him stated. "'How very appropriate.' "'You were recommended to me by a friend, Anna.' He smiled and nodded as if that explained everything. In truth, he knew three women by that name, any one of whom could have been the Anna referred to. Well, any of two, he amended, discounting the underage junkie from Sandra's massage parlour next door. "'I was told that you—that is, Sanna said—' He let her flounder for a minute, taking small pleasure in watching her do so. She really was a beauty, younger than he'd first assumed as well. The tailored clothing and expert make-up created an illusion of greater maturity and sophistication than truly existed in the woman they adorned. Nor was she entirely stupid, having evidently divested herself of all jewellery before venturing into this part of town. With one exception. You're married. The wearing of wedding rings had come back again in vogue in recent years. Her cheeks reddened prettily. Yes? So? Which was a fair question. What had been intended as an observation must have sounded more like an accusation, and it had been a mistake to blurt it out. She was having doubts he could see that much in her face. Presumably it took a lot of courage for her to come here, and now the resolve that had carried her this far was starting to waver. He cursed himself for a fool and set about repairing the damage with reassurance, smooth words and warm smiles, until she relaxed once more. Then it was time to discuss money. He had been weighing her up throughout, balancing her obvious reservations and nervousness against her apparent affluence, and the fact she was here at all. In the end he decided to raise his usual fee by fifty, and blithely said, Two hundred and fifty. She hesitated, her eyes widening slightly. Was it too much? Was it more than he'd charged Anna, more than her friend had warned her to expect? Probably, but he trusted his instincts. Whatever her thoughts, she kept them to herself, eventually responding with a simple nod, a quick, shallow bob of the head. In cash he stressed, feeling it a point worth making after her performance at the bar. "'Yes, of course. I drew out specially.' She reached for her bag. "'Not here,' he said, holding out a restraining hand. "'That can wait until we're less public.' "'Oh, right.' Her hand retreated back to her lap. When Conrad felt she was ready, he suggested they leave. He made a point of not looking in My Ling's direction on the way out. His place was just around the corner. They were there in less than five minutes. Rarely had any client made him so aware of his home's shortcomings. It had not seemed this shabby when he left it, nor as chilly. Sorry, it's a bit cold. He switched on the fire, conscious as he did so of how quaint this must seem. Doubtless in her own residence the heating was completely automated. 
Perhaps she even had one of those integrated systems where temperature, humidity, the entire ambiance was constantly maintained at predetermined levels according to the time of day and the season of year. He turned back to Joy and found her staring at the bed. At such moments, that particular piece of furniture always seemed to dominate the room, as if it somehow swelled in stature, especially for the occasion. Drink? She shook her head. A pity. It might have steadied her nerves. She had barely touched her drink back at Lacey's. Not that he blamed her. My Ling was no cocktail waitress. It was also apparent that her nervousness had increased since they left the bar, and he had no intention of her allowing her to back out, not with two hundred and fifty at stake. He helped himself to a scotch. Are you sure? Again she declined. Shall I pay you now? It was always a relief when the client offered without any further prompting. He accepted the money and tucked it away so rapidly that it must have seemed like sleight of hand. His was not a large room, and the fire was already beginning to have an effect, taking the edge off the chill. He helped her out of her coat, fingers lingering a fraction longer than they needed to, a brief caress of shoulder and top of the arm. She must have been aware that the touch was deliberate, but did not shrink away, which was a good sign. Now, Joy, he said, with an appropriately reassuring smile, is there anything in particular you had in mind? Knowing full well that there would be. As a matter of fact, her breath was coming in ragged heaves, the result of either anticipation or nerves, or both. He waited for her to continue, but the sentence seemed to have stalled permanently. You've not done anything like this before, have you? It didn't take a genius to work that out. She shook her head. Relax. He lifted a hand to caress her cheek. You're supposed to be enjoying yourself. She laughed, a nervous hiccup of released tension. I'm sorry. It's just so... I mean, now that I'm actually here. He laid his hands on her shoulders. It's okay. Take your time. She buried her head against his chest, and for a moment they were hugging each other. He drank in her scent, which was delicate and evocative rather than overpowering, suggestive of wild meadow flowers without being cloyingly floral. He held her until she loosened her hold, before slowly stepping back. I take it your friend Anna has told you what I do. In response he received a confirmatory nod, with that short, shallow motion of hers, like a bird pecking for seed, "'And since you came looking for me, I presume there's something specific you're after?' "'Yes.' "'Again she hesitated, but this time had obviously found the courage to complete her sentence. "'This is embarrassing, but... the President!' "'The President?' he repeated. "'Not again. Why did women find that damned man so attractive? "'Something of his disappointment must have shown in his voice. "'Is that a problem?' No, not a problem at all, he assured her, whilst reminding himself that the customer was always right. He had just hoped for something a little more original from her, a little more challenging. He excused himself, saying, It'll take me a few minutes to prepare. With that he slipped into the other room, the only other room his apartment boasted, a small cupboard-like space that would just accommodate a single bed, but which he used as a changing room and storage. He took out a slim valise from the drawer and flipped it open. It looked like an old-style laptop PC, but was in fact something a great deal more specialised. His home 
might have been shabby with its antiquated heating system. But this was state-of-the-art, and he was proud of it. Sitting down on the room's only chair, he took the narrow headband from its slot in the case. Metal with memory, as soon as it was unclipped, the band sprang unfailingly into shape, fitting snugly around his head. He fumbled for the thin wire that hung down one side and attached it to the jack point, tucked discreetly behind his left ear. "'I thought it was all you,' the girl said from the doorway. "'I didn't realise you had a machine.' Swallowing his annoyance at her uninvited appearance, and managing to smile, if a little indulgently, he said, "'It is all me. We're a very rare breed,' he added, suddenly wanting to impress upon her just how lucky she was— "'All this does is carry information.' He tapped the headband. "'The more detail I receive, the closer I can get to the original.' "'You want the President? You'll get the President. "'His own mother wouldn't know the difference.' "'But, uh, would his wife?' she quipped, with a suggested welcome return of spirit. "'Modesty forbids me to comment. Now, if you don't mind.' His eyes ushered her away. "'Oh, sorry.' and the doorway was empty once more. He would have shut the door had there been one, something which was at the top of a long list of things he must get around to sorting out one of these days. He took a deep breath and set about composing himself, focusing on his body and the flow of information from the headpiece, analysing the discrepancies. The small, apparently innocuous laptop he was now attached to carried detailed particulars on nearly a thousand individuals. They were all public figures. The databank had been up to date at the time he acquired it. Stole always struck him as such an uncouth word. Sadly, that had been some three or four years ago, and the number of profiles that remained current were ever dwindling as time went by. George Arnold Kelly's election to the highest office had been a welcome stroke of good fortune. Already a prominent figure, the charismatic politician's personal details had been mapped and stored long before was this information that now flowed into Conrad's brain, the man's height, weight, build and aspect, broken down to a stream of minutiae, hundreds of bits of information regarding skin pigmentation, bone and muscle density, weight distribution, hair colour, spine curvature, and every other element that combined to produce Kelly's physical appearance. The data was self-modifying. The system monitored news reports and other media sources, updating its details as time progressed, adjusting to the changing appearance of the individuals whose specifics it contained. Conrad started to change. The president was a little taller than him, his height adjusted accordingly. Everybody's spine is designed to accommodate a degree of movement. The average person is fractionally shorter at the end of the day than at the beginning, simply as a result of gravity compressing the vertebrae. Conrad's body took this to an extreme, with his spine being a lot more flexible and adaptable than most people's. It was also a process over which he could exercise conscious control. Cartilage and muscle swelled to extend the spine, drawing substance from the stomach which shrank to mimic Kelly's bored flat physique. Elastic skin stretched to accommodate the additional height, with internal organs settling to the slightly altered body shape. His hair grew out a fraction, and he boosted the levels of melanin, darkening its colour to the appropriate shade. Hundreds of tiny alterations swiftly accumulated. To have made each subtle change individually would have taken hours, which was where his link to the database came in. 
It fed the intricate details directly into his subconscious, which instigated the necessary metamorphosis as a programmed sequence of steps, rather than a random series of adjustments. In moments, the transformation was complete. There was only one physical feature that he then consciously amended, and no lady had yet complained about that particular part of the body being made larger than the President's original. Not that size mattered, or so they claimed. He stepped back into the room. "'My God!' she said, raising a hand to her mouth. "'Thank you, but I wasn't aiming quite that high. Just the President.' "'You even sound like him.' "'Of course. "'Why were people always surprised by that? "'Voice is largely shaped by physical characteristics, after all.' "'He was before her now, "'a hand lifting to undo the top button of her blouse, "'her bosom rising and falling in exaggerated fashion. "'They kissed, her mouth surprisingly cool "'whilst her breath carried the suggestion of mint.' Her blouse peeled away beneath his hands, revealing shoulders that were near white in their paleness, and finely sculpted in contour, like some elegant mountain ridge coated in virgin snow, inevitably drawing the eye downward to follow the sweep of its slope, which in this case developed into full, pert breasts. Each was crowned by small areolas and nipples that stood dark and proud against alabaster skin. As he bent to cup them, kissing first one, then the other, he found himself engulfed by her subtle, pheromone-laced scent. His fingertips traced the smooth perfection of her skin, a bewitching paradox of paleness and warmth. Clothing flaked off like blistered paint, shedding at the gentlest rub, and by the time they tumbled onto the bed, both were naked. To Conrad, this was a job. Such encounters were what he did for a living— Generally, he found himself emotionally uninvolved, mentally able to step back from the physical act and view his performance and that of his client in detached, analytical fashion. Not this time. Joy proved an active and imaginative lover, taking the lead as often as she was led, and she was so beautiful. He found himself swept up in the act of lovemaking, rediscovering that most precious ingredient of sex, passion. Completion arrived far more swiftly than he was used to. They disentangled, lying together on the bed. She favoured him with a timid, awkward smile. Thank you. She was thanking him? The second time was gentler, but no less satisfying. He was in more control on this occasion, paying greater attention to her pleasure, something he had not been entirely conscious of first time around. "'far more than the stipulated hour had passed when she eventually left. "'Can I come back sometime?' she asked at the door as they kissed a chaste farewell. "'It was all very touching, yet he knew full well that whatever memories she carried back into her everyday life "'would not involve making love with him, but with President George Kelly. "'He switched on a light. "'Evening had arrived at some point whilst they were in bed, bringing its customary baggage of twilight.' that transient state of almost darkness, like some traveller who has partially unpacked their luggage but made it perfectly clear that there is plenty more to come. He sat in a room made suddenly empty by Joy's departure, imagining he could detect the lingering ghost of her scent, and realising that he wanted to be somewhere else, anywhere else. 
With that directionless decision his only guide, he finished dressing, grabbed wallet and keys, and fled the claustrophobia of his home, his life. Where to? Not back to Lacey's, that much was certain. Too great a chance of being collared by some demanding client or other, which was the last thing he wanted. Besides, Lacey's would probably mean Roach, and would definitely mean My Ling. The only company he craved just then was his own. So he walked in the opposite direction, letting his feet carry him wherever they would. He passed unheeding through streets that were sluggishly stirring, cafes and bars welcoming the first influx of the evening trade as work ended and relaxation began. He soon found himself in a district dominated by neon, pulsing banners of garish light that tore chunks out of the gathering gloom, as strip joints, gaming halls, narcotics dens and assorted clubs vied with each other for the attention of every passer-by. He moved through it as swiftly as he could, like some well-oiled body slicing through water, allowing the surroundings to wash over him without touching or sticking. Finally he was at the river, all clustered bars whose tables and chairs spewed out upon paved courtyards and crowded walkways. An ornate, iron-framed footbridge spanned the water, attracting such places at either end, with the irresistible force of a magnet. A ragtag assortment of skiffs, punts, rowboats and canoes bobbed at their moorings beneath, seemingly vaguely sinister, at the spilled light that washed over them. He spurned the bridge as thoroughly as the bars and instead turned to the right, striding along a narrow boardwalk, the river to one side and the dark walls of overpriced waterfront apartments on the other. The crowds thinned almost at once and the staccato thud of his footsteps became audible, a hollow, muffled drum that somehow fell short of his expectations as to how shoes on wood should sound, but which suited his mood precisely. The boardwalk ended, and he was moving across grass, still beside the river, but alone now. All others evidently sucked into the neon and noise behind him like moths to a flame. The grass in turn gave way to concrete as he crossed a road, one which stopped abruptly just short of the water's edge, as if inviting anyone so inclined to drive pell-mell off the edge and end it all in a watery grave. After the road came a wasteland, a junkyard of abandoned cars, broken glass-battered crates and discarded machines, the mechanical effluent of an industrial society. It might have been a wasteland, but it was far from deserted. If his adopted status in Slate were towards the bottom end of the social pile, then those who lived here were firmly entrenched in his lowest basement, their lives as derelict as the surroundings. It was a dangerous place to be, particularly at night. A flickering glow told of a lit fire somewhere out of sight, whilst concentration brought the faintest suggestion of voices either barely heard or wholly imagined. The calculating eyes that watched him from the shadows were unquestionably real, whilst glimpses of movement between the car corpses bore further testament to the fact that he was not alone. Boldly he strode between the wreckage, his very presence a statement, his attitude a challenge. He was inviting someone to notice him and respond, would welcome the opportunity to vent his seething frustration through the channel of physical violence. Nothing happened. Perhaps those watching were unnerved by his self-assurance. Perhaps they sensed in him something of what he had once been. A killer. His return home was equally uneventful. Turning away from the river, he left the scrapland behind, walking through the streets of boarded-up houses, sporadically defaced with fluorescent graffiti in a brazen cacophony of night-glow colours, as if in pale imitation of the neon nightlife that had thrived just upriver. The streets here were empty, 
apart from the occasional burnt-out car and a single black shape that slunk barely low across the road ahead of him at one point, to melt away between decaying houses. Conrad had never liked cats. He respected them as hunters, but never liked. A few blocks further and the quality of the neighbourhood improved perceptibly, moving up from wrecked to vaguely habitable. The few cars he saw here were at least moving. A little further and he passed his first pedestrian since leaving the boardwalk, a young couple on their way home or doing goodness knows what. Such encounters grew increasingly frequent as the streets became better lit. Then he was home, having burned off a little of the aggression and frustration that afflicted him, and reaffirmed just what an awful dump Slate really was. Whatever demons that walk of Brownian motion had been intended to exercise were still hanging around, but at least they were a little more muted for now. He poured himself another whisky, sat down, and tried not to reflect on emptiness, the emptiness of the apartment, and of his life, which was soon to be joined by the emptiness of the bottle. He woke to the awareness of another presence in the room, on the bed. "'Did you enjoy her, your little white doll?' Mai Ling whispered in his ear. "'Did you screw her good?' The whisky must have hit him harder than he realised. He had not even heard her come in. "'Tell me,' her voice commanded from somewhere in the darkness above. The mattress moved as she changed position, and he felt the bedclothes drawn from his body. "'Tell me everything,' she said, an instant before kissing his navel, an instant before the tip of her tongue traced a line downwards to his groin. His earlier gloom banished at least for the moment. He closed his eyes and went with the flow. It was the next day that disaster struck. He awoke to find Mai Ling already gone. They lived their own lives. His schedule for the day was pretty full. He had a late morning booking with a regular, an elderly married woman with a fixation for a particular sports star. She had been coming to see him for over a year and never varied, never wanted him to be anybody different. His lunchtime was another matter. Young, single and not unattractive, she always wanted someone different. As things turned out, he was destined never to discover who had taken her fancy this week. For the first time he could recall, Conrad was forced to cancel an appointment. It was all due to what happened during the first appointment, or rather what failed to happen. Impotence. Not something he had ever experienced before, nor something he was prepared for. Having to refund a disgruntled client and knowing he had just waved goodbye to a regular source of income only made matters worse. Left alone, he attempted to resurrect the situation, but without success and so he felt obliged to cancel the rest of the day rather than risk the ignominy of failure. Even Mai Ling, summoned hastily back from work by a desperate phone call, proved unable to elicit a response. The afternoon found them both closeted in the apartment and him behaving like a bear with a sore head. There were doctors he could see, a quack Mai Ling swore by who worked miracles with acupuncture and a closet of mysterious potions based on traditional oriental medicines but he was not yet ready to share news of his misfortune with anyone else, and met the suggestion with a snarl and a curse. It was with evident relief that Mai Ling made her excuses and left to cover the evening shift at Lacey's. In truth, he was just as glad to see her go, since it allowed him to wallow in self-pity uninterrupted. With the approach of evening, the apartment walls seemed to close in once again. He headed out, 
wondering whether this sense of claustrophobia in his own home was becoming an obsession. Consciously avoiding Lacey's, he started to retrace his route of the previous evening. This time, instead of hurrying through the nightlife district, he stopped at a half-empty bar, choosing it at random. The first beer had barely been tasted when he was approached by an overtly glamorous girl, flashy red sequin dress and too much lip gloss. At least he initially assumed it was a girl. Closer inspection caused him to revise the assessment. The timbre of voice seemed just a fraction wrong to his practised ear, and the posture just a little too masculine. He made it clear he was not interested, at which point a testosterone-packed bouncer made it equally clear that his custom was no longer welcomed. The next place proved less particular, content to leave him in peace. It was an ideal spot in which to sit and think, sit and brood, if he were being entirely honest. When he had first come to Slate it had been an escape, an attempt to establish his own life and assert his independence, a desperate bid to preserve his sanity. He had other abilities beyond the mimicry, things he was trained to do for which there would always be a market. The trick had been to earn a living in a way that would draw the least attention. Hired assassins tended to create a stir. On the other hand, accepting money to sleep with an endless variety of women seemed likely to make fewer ripples, and was too tempting a proposition to resist. Of course, his new profession proved far less glamorous than it promised, and the thrill of novelty soon paled. More often than not, the women who sought him out were unattractive and uninspiring. Rarely did he encounter such things as beauty and passion. It was more likely to be halitosis, body odour, and a fawning lust for some micro-celebrity. It was a living, but did it really constitute a life? Increasingly, he found himself reflecting with wistful nostalgia on his former existence. At least the standard of living had been a hell of a lot better. All he had achieved in running away was to swap one form of prison for another, this time of his own making, perhaps, but a prison nonetheless. His abrupt disability only reinforced a feeling that had been nagging at the fringes of his awareness for a while now, crystallising it into certainty. It was time to move on. In fact, he rationalised, his impotence might well be a symptom of that very thing. Stress and unhappiness were doubtless the root cause— this was probably his subconscious telling him to look for pastors new. As soon as he said goodbye to Slate and the self-fashioned constraints of life here, everything would be fine again. Much heartened, he headed back to the apartment, only to find it already occupied. A figure sat in his favourite chair, which had been pulled over to face the door square on. It was a man with whom he was all too familiar, someone he had not seen for years— "'except in his worst nightmares. "'Reynolds.' "'Hello, Si. Long time, no, no, see. "'Sorry, it's Conrad now, isn't it?' "'You found me, then?' "'He was pleased to hear his voice sounding so steady. "'Inside his heart was racing. "'Found you?' "'A short bark of laughter. "'We knew where you were from day one. "'I received a call ten minutes after you first stepped into Lacey's place.' Conrad was less surprised than he might have been. Part of him had always questioned the lack of pursuit and doubted his ability to vanish so successfully, particularly carrying an expensive piece of company hardware. With as much composure as he could muster, he strolled into the room and sat down slowly on the end of the bed. Reynolds had him feeling like an intruder in his own home. So why? The world trailed off their meaning self-evident. Reynolds shrugged expansively. 
This seemed as good a place as any to keep you stashed until we needed you. Besides, I reckon you deserved a break. A break? If he had wanted a break, he could have chosen somewhere a lot more comfortable than this squalid hovel. Break out, perhaps, a bread for freedom, but a vacation? Hardly. Details started to register as his focus began to expand behind the locked-in shock of finding Reynolds here. He saw the newly opened bottle of whisky, his last, on the table beside the intruder and the glass that accompanied it, and he saw the valise, his precious memory bank of identities, and any last vestige of hope crumbled. What are you doing here? was all he could muster. We want you back. Playtime's over. Back? To do what? What do you think? No need for juggalos. Thanks all the same. Besides, I hear you're having a bit of a problem in that department of light. The accompanying smirk spoke volumes. You bastard. Reynolds just smiled. What is it, a toxin? A virus? Nanovirus. One we're quite proud of, actually. You can visit as many quacks as you like, pump yourself as full of as many tonics and guaranteed wood restorers as you can find. It'll nullify them all. Oh, and it'll keep on doing so until we decide to deactivate it. Think of it as a slow-burning justice, delayed retribution. After all, you did go AWOL with some very expensive kit that didn't belong to you. He tapped the valise absently as he spoke. Of course, without this, or your other equipment, you're going to have to look for a new line of work. Conrad ignored the barb. He ought to be seething, yet his temper was already draining away, cooling towards resignation. Mixed in with everything else was a strong sense of relief. Relief that his sudden impotence had an external cause, and relief, too, that he was being offered a way out of the dead end his life had become. The reaction surprised him. It merited further analysis at some point, but not at that particular moment. And presumably you'll happily turn off your little softening agent if I come back to the fold? Got it in one. What exactly do you want me to do? Nothing you haven't done before. There's been an untimely death. He chose his words with obvious care. How long would it be for? Meaning how long would he be forced to live life as a stranger? Who can say? Not long. A month, maybe. We should be past the vital period by then, and in a position to let the death become official. A month. It could be worse. It had been last time. Then it had been an actor, the biggest star of the age. The man's popularity and income were so great that his wealth underpinned the whole economy. His sudden death in a drug-fueled sadomasochistic orgy spelled financial disaster. So Conrad had made him live again, even starring in his two final movies, considered by critics not to be amongst his best. The impersonation had lasted for three long years, during which time the powers that be had quietly gone about the business of restructuring the economy, moving funds and bolstering investments. It had given them enough time to prepare for the great man's eventual departure. Unfortunately for all concerned, Conrad had cracked a short while before the scripted exit. Prior to that assignment, his brief had been invariably to assassinate a target and replace him short-term until the relevant mission was completed. The killing he could handle, it was the living that proved beyond him. Being another person for a few days or weeks was one thing. Living in somebody else's skin for three years turned out to be quite another. The complete lack of control had been part of the reason, the sense that his life was no longer his own. But there was more to it than that. 
whilst appreciating the irony that a mere celebrity's unexpected death could destabilize an economy far more than any business magnates, the three years had been pure hell for Conrad. The fame and glamour had been enjoyable enough, particularly at first. It was everything else that went with it. The man's penchant for hedonistic debauchery went way beyond his own tastes, and proved far more than he could stomach. He tried to limit his involvement, but was too established a part of his adopted lifestyle to be toned down to any great extent, at least not without raising unwelcome questions. The more Conrad experienced, the more he hated it, and the harder the pretense became. He felt as if his soul were progressively shriveling inside him. With each event, each sordid act, it withered a little more. Feeling himself teeter on the edge of a breakdown, he had cut and run. Now they wanted him to do the same thing all over again, except that no one could be that bad. Whoever it was they needed him to become, it could never be as stressful or as impossible as before. Okay, so this might be coercion in a big way, but he knew he was probably going to accept without too much complaint. Besides, he had a pretty good idea of who it was. For Reynolds to be here in person, it had to be someone of the utmost importance. As far as Conrad could see, there was only one likely candidate. So he braced himself and asked, Who is it? Without saying a word, the other reached into an inside pocket and produced a photograph which he handed across. Conrad stared at it, incredulous. For a moment he was genuinely speechless, then managed to produce a strangled, You're kidding. Reynolds stared back impassively. You've done this sort of thing before. True, but... Conrad licked his lips nervously. How have you kept the lid on this? I haven't even heard a whisper about it. Yes, well, it was sudden. A heart attack. It took everyone by surprise. When? Tomorrow. Reynolds' gaze skewered him, prohibiting any thought of movement. So he sat there, absorbing the full implications of that single, fate-laden word. At the same instant he was struck by the realisation that refusing the assignment was no longer an option, if it ever had been. Not if he wanted to live beyond this meeting. Why? Security risk. That's all you need to know. Does he know? No. Conrad was off balance, his thoughts reeling from one subject to another in an effort to cover too many vital issues. They settled on one, a matter that continued to bother him. How? Infecting me with this nanovirus? I mean, how did you do it? Reynolds just smiled, challenging him to figure out the answer for himself. It could have been slipped into a drink or food. No, that wasn't the way Reynolds' mind worked. Sexually transmitted, it had to be. A face swam into his mind's eye, and suddenly he knew. Joy. The name turned to ashes in his mouth. The other's smile broadened. See? You can still think when you're forced to. Good, isn't she? Conrad wondered briefly in what sense the comment was intended. A good actress or good in bed? Not that it mattered. Either could apply and they both amounted to the same thing. Good at her job. It came unbidden. Hysterical, belly-wrenching spasms of laughter that bubbled up from somewhere deep within him, causing him to keel over on the bed, clutching his stomach. Somehow the revelation of Joy's complicity was the final straw. He glanced across at Reynolds through watery eyes. The look of startled alarm on that habitually controlled face was enough to set him off again. 
Eventually he regained sufficient composure to struggle back into a sitting position. Pass me that bottle. Reynolds did so without comment. Before taking a long swig, Conrad saluted his former and future boss. Then he handed back the bottle, along with the photo, the one that showed the unmistakable face of the First Lady, the President's wife, the woman he was about to become. The Gift of Joy by Ian Waits was read for StarshipSofa.com by AlexFoster.me.uk Thank you very much, Ian, for allowing Starship Sofa to get your story narrated. And Alex Foster, thank you very much for narrating this. Don't forget, this story is the work of Ian Waits, and nobody can go copying it and trying to sell it on as their own. And my show as well comes under the Creative Commons 3.0, share and share alike. Like I say, just one more time, pop over the forums, say hello, leave your comments on this story, vote for which one you think is the best story, and I will see you tomorrow. I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa, of that erasure procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.